Thanks, bro. You can grab a seat. And so we are in a teaching series titled Renewal, Reawakening, and Revival. And so again, if you didn't know, uh, we are a new church in the city. We just officially started in September. And so as we establish ourselves, we're also establishing new rhythms. And what's really important for us as a church, as Danny mentioned, like we're in this season of prayer and fasting because we want to make sure that even though, you know, we can, we have this wonderful service and everyone in this room is really, really cool. The one thing that is most important is Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. And part of our prayer is, is to be completely in union with the Holy Spirit, which is why it's really important for us as a church to learn how to pray with and for one another. What is the one thing that the disciples of Jesus asked for him to teach them? It was how to pray. And often there is a misconception in in Christianity in regards to discipleship where we pray before doing the work or doing ministry or whether it's for many of us that have been part of children's ministry or youth ministry. It's like, hey, let's pray before we actually do the work. Where in reality, prayer is the work. And so far in, this, uh, in these last couple of weeks as we're unpacking the Lord's Prayer, we've unpacked the first two petitions, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So just a little bit of review. Um, so in the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament, which is all the recollections of the life of Jesus from four different perspectives, we have the Lord's Prayer recorded in two of them, in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, Fun little graphic right here. Uh, Not actually how they look like because that's impossible. Um, But anyways, uh, so we have the four gospels, but the Lord's Prayer is only found in two of them, one in Luke, one in Matthew. And so as John so eloquently and kindly read our teaching text, uh, we're reading from the book of Matthew. And so in the book of Luke, there's a version of the Lord's Prayer there. And Luke's gospel was... um, was intended for the Gentiles, or Gentiles is just like another word for people that weren't Jewish. So essentially, for Luke, his audience, he's teaching people that have no idea or paradigm of how to pray. In in comparison to Matthew, he is writing his gospel for the Jews who knew how to pray, but he was correcting how they prayed. And so just a little bit of a nuance in between these two gospels. And so again, the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer, last week we've kind of like Uh, framed as the disciples' prayer. Um, Although it's recorded twice, doesn't mean that Jesus only taught it twice. He probably taught this numerous times over the three years of his public ministry. A little bit more grammar and syntax just for fun. Uh, Again, the Lord's Prayer consists of six petitions. Uh, Cue graphic here. Um, The first three petitions are centralized on the pronoun your And the petitions four to six, the back half is centered around the pronoun us. And at the very center of the prayer, we see this clause on earth as it is in heaven, which actually applies to all six of the petitions. Um, And we've learned that this clause is a prepositional phrase, which locates God's heavenly realities to our earthly dimension. We've also learned that these petitions are not requests, but they're commands because they're in the imperative mood. What's the imperative mood? Imperatives are commands. And so when we pray this petition, we're not just saying, can your will happen? Can your will be done? There are no question marks here. We're saying your will be done. Lastly, the verbs in the three petitions, although being very powerful verbs, 
in the imperative, remember imperative means commands, they're all in the passive form. Instead of make your name holy, it's your name is already holy. And so this passive voice softens these commands to allow for the reverence that is needed when we pray and approach the Father. Okay, enough review uh, into today's petition. Every time I'm like, can I trim this a little bit more every week, every week? I think we're getting there. Um, So we are finally unpacking the third petition today, which is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what is Jesus talking about when he uses the word will? Is he talking about like a person's will, um, like a person's wish for when they pass in regards to like, their real estate and their assets, their wishes when they pass, their will? Or is he talking about will as a verb uh, in regards to expressing the future tense of something that will inevitably happen in the future? I think it's a bit of a both and. And so if it helps, um, maybe let's use a synonym in place of the word will. Let's use the word wish just for funsies, okay? As human beings, we have a lot of different types of wishes and desires. Um, We might wish to have a certain job or role in the future, or maybe like a shift in our workplace. Uh, We might wish to eventually be a homeowner, even though it's really hard to live in the city. Like, that's a great wish. We might even wish to have and start a family one day. These are all really healthy, appropriate, and like really good wishes. Um, But sometimes... Uh, we wish to have more Instagram followers. Not inherently bad, but not the best thing in the world. Um, We might wish for our partner or spouse to be less lazy in a certain area. Uh, We might even wish for that annoying person in our workplace to get fired. And so all I'm saying is, is that our wishes, our will, sometimes isn't the best thing for us. And that's because of our human nature. And so to paint a little bit of a a better picture, imagine you were falsely imprisoned, okay? Falsely imprisoned, you are in jail behind bars, okay? And your wish is for a memory foam mattress in your prison cell. I mean, you should wish for freedom because you're falsely imprisoned. But that kind of captures our human nature. Sometimes what we wish for isn't always what's best for us. And so in this petition, uh, again, the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And so we have to translate a lot of these Greek words into English. But as I have found, as I'm even learning Japanese on the side, a lot of words mean a lot of different things. And the English word that we use for will, but for the Greek word, doesn't fully articulate exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And so the Greek word that is used here is the Greek word thelema. Thelema. And so the word thelema, it carries two kind of dual meanings in this word. It carries uh, the meanings of purpose, but it also carries the meaning of pleasure, purpose and pleasure. And so what does it mean for Jesus? What does he mean when he teaches us to pray this petition? May your thelema be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, let's look at how Jesus actually praise this petition in his own life. So in Matthew 26, uh, 39 to 42, we see Jesus in the garden of, uh, garden of Gethsemane. And he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
And then later on in the chapter, he prays again for the second time. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's preceding the moments um, before he, you know, the passion narrative begins. He is under immense pressure as he is facing the Roman cross. Again, the cross, which is execution. Um, And here we see that he prays that the Father's will be done in his life. And again, as he prays these things, may you take this cup away. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself is praying, if there's any other way to, to, to usher in salvation for all people, could we do that option? But at the same time, may it not be my will, but yours, Father. And so Jesus, the Son of God, submits to the Father. And so for a follower of Jesus, this is a big deal because Jesus submits to the Father's will. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to uh, exemplify the way of Jesus, right? And so if Jesus, the Son of God, is submitting to the Father, then we as Christians are also called to submit to the Father's will. And so what does it mean to submit to the Father's thelema, to the Father's purpose and pleasure? What does that mean? It means to be blessed and to be bringers of blessing. It means to be blessed and to be bringers of blessing. And we can trace this back all the way to the first commandment. And I'll kind of unpack that a little bit more in just a moment. But we can trace this back to the first commandment that humanity receives all the way back to Genesis. And so what is God's first commandment to humanity? Genesis 1, 26 and 28, 2, 28 reveals this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And so the first commandment to humanity is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. And so you can read in between the lines that first part, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, All the married homies are, you know, high-fiving here. So you can read in between the lines what that first commandment is. That is from the Lord. But the other part is to fill the earth and government. And so to rephrase this, um, we can understand it as to live with and in, uh, in creation and to carry out God's kingdom to all people in all places. So there's this like reality of like being in and living in and with and for all of creation. And so the Father's will from the very beginning all the way from Genesis was for humanity to join God in overseeing, in directing, in blessing all of creations. And that's what sets apart humanity from all of creation, all of created things. Humanity is made in God's own image. And so we share in this like beautiful commissioning of like, some, of, some different translations will use the word subdue. This translation of the NLT uses govern. So to like lead and direct and oversee all things in creation. And so keep in mind, all of these instructions are pre-fall. 
these are all things before Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 is when we see, like, the serpent, like, you know, like, pull up to the scene, and then sin enters because, like, the, the, the serpent, like, does some bad things. You can read that on your own. But these are all pre-fall things. And so even after Genesis chapter 3, where humanity messes up God's good world, God doesn't just give up on humanity. He actually creates this elaborate plan to restore and redeem all of creation. But what he does to do this is he first begins uh, this plan with partnering with a couple in Genesis 12. And this partnership to partner again with this couple is the beginning of blessing the entire world. Again, this is now post-fall, after sin has entered into humanity. So let's read a little bit about this couple. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, one to three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram and his wife, Sarai, and later on uh, in a few chapters, they get like new names. We've talked about how important names are. Um, And they're renamed to Abraham and Sarah. And this couple, Abraham and Sarah, they are called to be a blessing to all people. And so if you read out this like story and narrative, they're called from their hometown, which is Ur, which would be like modern day Iraq. Uh, And they are called to move and be a blessing to all people. And so what the Lord begins here all the way in Genesis is to start a culture of blessing. Through God's sons and daughters, he starts a culture of blessing. And so if we are called um, to partner with God in this culture of blessing, then we share in this responsibility. And so when we are thinking about this question, what is God's will for your Life. What is God's plan for your life? What is God's wish for your life? Is that you respond to his will, his invitation. And so for us as sons and daughters, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it means that we, we share in this vocation. Vocation is like one of those kind of like words that like linger Uh, We kind of hear it from time to time, but I don't think we all have maybe the same idea and understanding and definition of the word vocation. And so the word vocation, we get the word from the Latin word vocatio, um, which can be more directly translated to calling um, or even voice. And so if we can understand vocation as our calling in life, That's the question we need to ask ourselves. What is your calling? What is my calling? And sometimes when we hear the word calling, it has this like mysterious and ambiguous vibe where it's just like, you know, cue like synth music in the background. What's my calling in life, right? Um, And sometimes we think we have to wait for some like incredible, beautiful vision or dream to, to reveal what our calling in life is. And don't get me wrong, that can happen. That can definitely happen in prayer and fasting. And we see instances in the scriptures where like Moses, like we talked about, I think last week, like he sees like the 
God in the burning bush and like his calling to like lead Israel out of slavery is revealed. We see Saul who turns into Paul in the New Testament, like on the road to Damascus, gets this like crazy and elaborate vision of Christ. And then his whole life is turned upside down. But I think these examples are exceptions. These are unique moments because I think a better way to understand calling is understanding how God has hardwired you to be. And I say the, the word hardwired very specifically because we're all different. Um, we're all unique and, and fearfully and wonderfully made to quote scripture. Um, I myself, a lot of people have a misconception that I'm this like extroverted, like high energy all the time. I can do that for like maybe max 30 minutes, um, maybe like an additional 20 minutes of like lowered energy. But if you see me just like lurking in the streets, dude, I got a hat, I got a mask, like I am like low power mode most of the week because uh, I'm very introverted. Um, but that's who I am. Um, and, and so a lot of like space in different church settings, not our own church, because I feel like this is unique. Um, but when I would get scheduled to greet, for example, like that's one of the things I would absolutely not like because like expending social energy. And again, I've been in larger church contexts is where it's just like, that just sucks the life out of me, where it's just like, hey, welcome, good morning, next person. Hey, welcome, good morning. Hey, welcome, good morning. I feel like I could just record that and just like play it on my shoulder, like, hey, welcome, good morning. Um, where like, for me, I feel like how God has hardwired me to be is I can kind of communicate in maybe like certain spaces like this. Like last Friday, like I, I still, um, I still feel called to youth ministry. I was a youth pastor for a long time with a few people in this room. And even though like our paradigm and our reality right now is like church planting, uh, I still feel called to youth ministry. Not to be a youth pastor though, but still feel called to youth ministry. And so the Lord has just still opened doors for me to like partner with local youth ministries to come and speak. Um, and, in, and I'm really thankful to the Lord to do that. But like last Friday, like I was speaking at a youth group and they wanted me to come talk about like relationships and sex. And I was like, okay, Lord, if this is your will, like, let's do it. And so, like, we pull up, and I just, like, made sure with the youth. I was like, hey, like, you've told everyone, like, I'm talking about sex, right? Like, just, just so we know, because I saw some parents lingering, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but the night went over really well. I was even thrown into a small group at the end to, like, talk about sex in grade seven boys. Um, and you can imagine how that goes. Uh, but it was good. But God's hard hardwired me to be a certain way. And, again, I can't do a lot of things, but I think that's why... Again, like God brings people together where we don't have to work on our weaknesses. Like, why don't we just do life with people whose strengths are our weaknesses? Calling isn't a choice. It's who God created you to be. Um, John Mark Comer, who's a, who was a former pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, um, I say former because I guess he's like a discipleship content creator. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, got the, got the thumbs up. He's like a discipleship content creator. You should read his books. They're really good. Um, if, you've, if you want to get into like reading more like pop theology, this is a great entry point. Anyways, he says this in his book, Garden City. Calling isn't something you choose, like who you marry or what car you get. It's something unearthed. You excavate. And I really like the words that he uses here, unearthed and excavate because your calling is already in your life. It's just a matter of discerning and finding out what God created you to do and be. And so what is God's call on your life? How can your vocation harmonize with your 
occupation. And as the Apostle Paul, who has written um, a lot of the New Testament, as he writes to the Christians in the ancient city of Corinth in the first century, he says this, uh, and I'm going to read from the message translation. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. And again, he's talking to a church community. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If the foot said, I'm not elegant like the hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body, would that make it so? If the ear said, I'm not beautiful like the eye, transparent and impressive, I don't deserve a place on the head, would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all an eye, how could it hear? If it was all an ear, how could it smell? As it was, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. And again, Paul isn't just like having this like biology lesson and talking about the human body. He's comparing the human body to the church. Like we are all unique. We all have different giftings. We're all hardwired in a different way that complements all of us, that complements Christ's church. And so, for example, in this room, there is a variety of different fields of work represented. There's people, Atto's <laughs> smiling at me because I use him. I'm not, I, I put here, I'm not going to mention mechanic. So it's too late now, bro. So, um, anyways, in this room, lots of fields of work that are represented. People that are in healthcare, people that are in tech, people that are mechanics, uh, people that are in education, in the arts, people that are in clergy, like myself. And as I've said before numerous times, like I might be a clergy worker and my mother over here might be a healthcare worker, but we all share in the same vocation, which is to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. In other words, we are called to be bringers of blessing. We are, called to, we are called to usher in the kingdom in every place that we occupy, every place that we frequent, and every place that we find ourselves in. Hot take, we are called to, we are all called to full-time ministry. But Jer, like I thought you have to be a pastor to be in full-time ministry. That is a big misunderstanding, I think, unfortunately, that we as a church have kind of framed. The word ministry all that means is service. And so when you look at even the government sector and government jobs, there are like ministers of whatever. The word ministry simply means service. It's the role that we all play in the body of Christ. And so what is your role? What is your calling? What is your service? For us as followers of Jesus, we're called to live our lives in such a way where the people around us maybe begin to ask questions. Maybe it's not, you know, as your, maybe your colleagues, it's not just questions about maybe your job performance, but deeper questions of maybe why you seem so at peace in hard times, why you might radiate joy in all seasons, um, or why you just have wisdom in the most surprising of circumstances. We're supposed to live our lives with Christ in full display. And so when we pray this petition, may your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. What we're praying for is for God to bless us so that we would be a blessing to all people.